The past few months, uh, I found myself uh, spending a good deal of time answering questions put to me by uh, various good Catholics, uh, questions uh, about limbo, about purgatory, about the Pope, about councils, about bishops, about salvation outside the church, and on and on. But one of the things that became very uh, apparent to me just from the whole nature of the questions and thinking about what's really the source of these is there's a great number of very good people that have a very confused understanding or just plain flat wrong understanding of the very nature of the church that Christ has established. All these questions, almost all of them, are related to a real confusion about something called ecclesiology or, or about the nature of the church itself, okay? So it wasn't surprising given the current state of things, uh, but it's not malicious, but it's just confused or wrong. So I thought we'd spend some time over a course of sermons periodically trying to make sure that that can't be said about us. So this morning we'll start by taking a look at the foundation, at the beginning, when you're talking about uh, a building, you, you better start with the foundation. And we'll start with the foundation. Uh, we'll look at how our Lord founded the church. To do that today, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 16. In later sermons, we'll, we'll go from the foundation, obviously, to what we have right now. But it's important to start uh, with first principles. So anyway, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 16 talk about this elsewhere to some degree, but in order to understand what's going on in Matthew chapter 16, first we need to make sure that we all know just what a threshing floor is. Okay, Padre, so what is a threshing floor? Back in the olden days, a threshing floor was a big old flat uh, circular area of land, be hard ground. It ranged anywhere from 50 to 300 feet in uh, diameter. Typically, it was located out in some breezy, open part of the country or up on a flat hilltop. What would happen is small grains like wheat or barley were first harvested with a sickle, then bound into sheaves, and then the sheaves were carted off to the threshing floor. On the threshing floor, they tossed those sheaves out there onto the threshing floor, and then the grain would be thrashed up. Now, there's different ways of doing it. One typical way is using a flail. It's where we get the word flailing about. But a flail is two pieces of wood. They're like sticks. One's about four foot long. Another's about three foot long. The four foot long one's the handle, and then you have a piece of leather joining them together, and you just go to whacking on the, on your flailing, so you're whacking on those sheaves, and it knocks the grain loose. So Okay, so the people beat the sheaves with the flails, and that knocked the grain loose. And the result is a big old mess of straw and grain and chaff and dust all over the threshing floor. Uh, they, they, sometimes they'd harness up livestock and drag a sledge over it and grind out. There's different ways, but a flail is real typical. Winnowing is the next step. That either involved a, using a basket called a winnowing fan. Now, ba- this kind of basket looks just like a it's a basket that looks just like the hand, a grain scoop without a handle. And the reason for that is that's what you're doing with it. It's a basket shaped like a scoop. Or they'd use a, a long wooden fork, which is called a winnowing fork. And what you did with that is toss the grain and straw into the air. And the grain just falls right back down, but the breeze blows away the straw and the chaff and the dust from the grain. That's where you get that old saying, separating the, the wheat from the chaff that comes from. Uh, combine does this nowadays with the fans and all that, anybody that's worked on combine. Last step in the whole process, and the same thing a combine has it too, but to shake the grain in a sieve, and that would sort out the little pebbles and, and, and de- debris like that. So now we know what a threshing floor is and how grain was thrashed in the olden days. Now what does this have to do with anything? Well, 
If we look in First Chronicles chapter 21, that pops right to everybody's mind right now. As I say that, you know what we're talking about. King David buys a threshing floor along with the oxen and the sledges because they're using oxen to thrash out that grain, dragging the sledges. He buys it from a man named Ornan the Jebusite. And then he builds an altar right on that threshing floor. It's really interesting, the reasons, but it doesn't matter for this right now. He builds an altar and offers up holocausts and peace offerings. Okay, so burnt offerings right there, a sacrifice that was so pleasing to God that God sent fire down from heaven to, to consume those sacrifices. So fire falls from heaven on this altar that's built on the threshing floor of, of Ornan the Jebusite and consumes the sacrifices. You know God is happy with something when he sends fire down, okay, in that way. It isn't to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but to consume the sacrifice being offered to him. Okay, three important details we want to consider today about this particular threshing floor where David bought and built the altar. In Second Chronicles chapter 3, we read that the son of David, King Solomon, built the temple on Mount Moriah on that very threshing floor the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So first important detail, the very site where King David built that altar and offered a sacrifice that was so pleasing to God that fire fell from heaven to consume it, that very site is also the site of the Temple of Solomon. That's the first important detail. Second important detail, if we look in Genesis chapter 22, the top of Mount Moriah was the very same hilltop on which Abraham had been ordered to offer his son Isaac as a burnt offering. That's right on the altar. That's the one on the epistle side on the bottom there. That's a that's a, a little uh, relief picture of, of Abraham offering Isaac's all bound and the angels holding Abraham's arm back from sacrifice. That's the same threshing floor right there. So where Abraham offered Isaac in sacrifice, where King David built the altar and fire fell from heaven, where Ornan the Jebusite thrashed out grain is also where King Solomon built the temple. Hold those points, okay? It also turns out that after King Solomon died, the son who replaced him as king, who was such a royal jerk, that ten out of the twelve tribes revolted against him, broke away, and formed the northern kingdom of Israel. So the ten tribes had legitimate gripes. But the important point here is not only did the ten northern tribes make a political break with the kingdom of Judah, They also made a religious break. When they broke away from his reign, they broke away from the temple, too. They didn't have to do that. But instead of worshiping at the temple built on Mount Moriah, on the site of Abraham's sacrifice, on the site of the threshing floor of Ornan and Jebusite, they set up other centers of worship, not on that particular threshing floor. Okay, we said there were three important details in regards to that threshing floor. The first one is it's not only the site where King David erected that altar, offered a sacrifice that was so pleasing to God that fire fell from heaven. It's also the site of the temple. That's the first point. And the second one was that it's the very site on which Abraham had been ordered to offer up his son Isaac as a burnt offering. So what is the third important point? The third important point is that this very site, there's also a large flat stone. It's an outcropping, it's a big old piece of exposed bedrock out in the middle of the threshing floor. The stone is an important detail. You're joking, right? Believe it or not, this is an important stone. In the Temple of Solomon, this rock was actually on the floor of the Holy of Holies. And it's the actual surface on which the Ark of the Covenant was placed. So the floor of the Holy of Holies is this stone. And the Ark of the Covenant would be placed on it when it was still there before Jeremiah hit it. Today... You can see that stone. There's a huge mosque 
built over the top of it, and it's called the Dome of the Rock. And the reason it's called the Dome of the Rock is because that's the rock there. So that rock is what it's built over. So it's right there inside the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem is this stone. Now, since ancient times, the Jews have had, they called this particular stone the foundation stone. They call it the foundation stone. There's all kinds of legends about it. For example, since ancient times, they claim that this rock is like a capstone. And what it does is it holds back disorder and chaos from the underworld and prevents it from erupting out and flooding the world. All that, that's a legend, but all that's background for the gospel we're talking about because remember, our Lord is speaking to the apostles, and they know all this stuff. This might be news to us, but they know all this. They're familiar with all this, so that, that it gives us the context. So all that by way of background, we're looking at Matthew chapter 16. We see our Lord saying to the apostle Simon, quote, I say to thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind upon earth, it shall be bound also in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose upon earth, it shall be loosed also in heaven. Close quote, inspired inerrant word of God. Now, in light of what we've seen already, let's spend a few moments unpacking three important points just made by our Lord in Matthew 16 when he's talking about the foundation of his church. First point, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. Here we see our Lord changing Simon's name to Peter, which means rock. That's why when we talk about something being petrified, it's the same word. It means it turned into stone, right? So Peter means rock. In other words, our Lord is saying to Simon, Thou art rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Earlier in the Gospel of St. Matthew, if you look in chapter 7, our Lord says that the wise man builds his house upon a rock. The wise man builds his house on a rock. Who's the wisest man in the Old Testament? You don't need me to tell you. Everybody knows it's King Solomon. So just as King Solomon had built the temple on a rock, this foundation stone, so also our Lord, who said of himself that he was greater than Solomon, built his church on a rock, a living rock, a new foundation stone, St. Peter the Apostle. In other words, what we have, what the foundation stone was to the temple, St. Peter is to our Lord's church. The foundation stone itself is a type, a prefigurement of St. Peter. The remarkable difference here is our Lord built his church on a living stone and with living stones. And you'll notice St. Peter using these exact words in chapter 2 of his second epistle, and St. Paul uses that same idea in chapter 2 of his letter to the Ephesians. So Solomon, the king... The son of David built his temple on the foundation stone of Mount Moriah. And now we see Christ, the king, the son of David, building his church on a new living foundation stone, Peter, which then he moves to a new hill, the Vatican Hill in Rome. So that first important point here is St. Peter is the foundation stone for the church of Jesus Christ. Second point, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Our Lord is pointing out that his new foundation stone, St. Peter, is a new capstone responsible for suppressing disorder and chaos of the underworld. In other words, the second point is St. Peter, the new foundation stone, has a crucial role in preventing all hell from breaking loose. Third point, I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind upon earth, that shall be bound also in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose upon earth, it shall be loosed also in heaven. In the olden days, cities had walls with gates. 
So being given the keys to the city was a symbol of being given a position of very great trust and honor, being trusted with the safety of the populace. We still do this. I mean, a lot of people don't know why they're given the keys to the city. You know, have this thing in the mayor will give somebody like this big wooden key, the key to this. We don't have the big barricades and all that with a gate. It, but it's still a sign of honor, at least in small towns where I'm from. Maybe they don't do that down here anymore. But anyway, our Lord here is referring to an event in the 22nd chapter of the prophet Isaiah. Remember again who he's talking to. They know the scriptures. These apostles know the scriptures. In the 22nd chapter of Isaiah, we see through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord ordering the king, a descendant of David, to replace his old prime minister with a new prime minister. The Lord also says that the new prime minister, quote, shall be as a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, I will lay the key of the house of David upon his shoulder, and he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. Close quote. What's the point? Jerusalem had prime ministers that ruled in the name of the Davidic kings. These prime ministers were to act as fathers to the king's subject and were given the keys to the kingdom. So our Lord, the son of David, has just appointed a prime minister over his kingdom here on earth, and he expects his prime minister, St. Peter, to act as a father to his subjects, which is why we call our Lord's prime minister our Holy Father. Our Lord gives the Holy Father the keys to the new eternal Davidic kingdom, along with the power to bind and loose, the power to pass judgments in the name of the Lord. Even the comedians recognize this. That's why we have all these crazy jokes with St. Peter up there at the pearly gates. Everybody recognizes this in some confused way. At any rate, the third point is, our Lord has just appointed St. Peter to be his prime minister and given power over his kingdom. Let's tie everything together today. The threshing floor of Ornan prefigures a number of things. Certainly at one level, it's a type of the church that's clear not only from the context, but also from other scriptural passages. For example, St. John the Baptist uses this exact imagery when he's speaking of our Lord. So here's St. John the Baptist referring to our Lord. Quote, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Close quote. The fact that the foundation stone is right there in the midst of the threshing floor symbolizes the necessity of our union with the foundation stone of our Lord, our Holy Father, the Pope. Of course, the sacrifices of the temple, all of which took place in that very same spot, also prefigure the holy sacrifice of the Mass being offered in union with the Pope. There's not a lot of time to go into great detail about this today, but... There's something in the traditional uh, Roman rite of the Mass, what we do here, there's actually a ceremony which is a sign and a pledge expressing that this Mass is being offered in union with the Pope. It happens right after the fractionation of the host. Because after the host is broken and then another piece is broken off. And then that piece, when the priest is singing, Pax Domini, sit semper fobiscum. May the peace of the Lord be always with you. When the priest is singing it, then he drops that fraction of the host into the precious blood. Great. So how does that signify anything to do with our union with the foundation stone of the Holy Father, the Pope? What does that have to do with anything? Well, in the olden days in Rome, the Pope used to send out a fraction of a host consecrated at his Mass to the Roman priests that were in union with him. And at that point of the Mass, this part of a host was dropped into the chalice to show that the Mass was being said in union with and in communion with the Holy Father. So that's what's going on in Pax Domini Sit Semper Vobiscum.
Anyway, that's enough on the liturgy. The situation in which the king was such an insufferable jerk that ten northern tribes revolted against him, broke away, and instead of worshiping at the side of the foundation stone, set up their own centers of worship elsewhere, not on that particular threshing floor, prefigures all those who down through the ages, starting with people like Simon Magus and will end with at the crack of doom, all those who broke away from union with the foundation stone of our Lord's church, the Pope, and set up their own centers of worship. What befell those ten tribes is also prefigurement. God put up with their rebellion for a while, sent the prophets to them, calling them back to union with him. But when their time ran out, they were smashed and completely swept away by the Syrians. Let's close. Taking a brief look at the foundation stone of our Lord's church, our Holy Father, the Pope. Just starting with first things, and then we're going to go later on to look in greater detail at the nature of the church as it is. Today and every day, let's ask Our Lady to preserve our Holy Father, the Pope, to preserve our union with him, and to bring all those who lack the true faith, or for whatever reason lack true union, safely back into the threshing floor of the Lord.